So last week, we read the Mishnah, the teaching in Periyavos and Chapters of the Fathers and Ethics of the Fathers, that essentially presented us what everything is all about. And we learned about Shimon HaTzadik, Shimon the Righteous. He said it all boils down to three different relationships. There's a relationship that man has with himself, man is in mankind. There's a relationship man has with his fellow, and the relationship that man has with God. And Torah is there to perfect man entirely. That breaks down to the three different areas, arenas of our life. To perfect ourselves personally, we have Torah. To perfect ourselves with our relationship to God, we have Avoda, which is worship of God. And to perfect the relationships we have with other people, we have Chesed, we have kindness, so love and kindness. The next three Mishnas, the next three instructions will address each one of these three categories more specifically, more deeply. So the first one is going to talk about avoda, worship of God. What are the parameters of avoda, which is one of the three pillars upon which the world stands? And essentially, we're going to learn about avoda is about creating a relationship, a lasting a, a, a strong, a robust relationship with God. So what is the what are the keys to creating a lasting, deep, profound relationship with our Creator? Once you learn about some of those principles, they are indeed applicable to all kinds of relationships. You know, a lot of times relationships go bad. Uh, and that's not necessarily uh, because it had to go bad, but because the proper steps, the proper measures were not implemented to make sure that it's going to last. So here we see a an approach to how to develop a lasting relationship with God. But again, like all of these teachings, uh, they can be used in other arenas, in other instances. Now, this is a very difficult subject that we're going to address today. And it's a very subtle one. Maybe those that maybe that's the reason why. It's a, it's a very subtle point. I want to read the mission quickly, and then we'll break it down piece by piece. Antignus Ish Soko. Again, we're going through this lineage of Torah. We started with Moses. Eventually, we met the men of the Great Assembly. Last week, we learned about the last of the men of the Great Assembly, Shimon the Righteous, Shimon Atzadik. And now his student, the next link in the chain, the next generation, the leader is someone by the name of Antignus, the man of Soko. He lived in Soko, which is in southern Israel. And he received the tradition from Shimon HaTzadik, from Shimon the Righteous. And like Shimon HaTzadik before him, like many of the great sages after him, he had a maxim, he had an aphorism that he would always say. That was his thing that he used to repeat again and again. What would he say? Do not be like servants who serve their master on the condition of receiving reward. Ella, rather, havut avadim of shalom amanat pras. Rather, you should be like servants who serve their master, not on the condition of receiving reward, and let the fear of heaven be upon you. This is the three teachings that he would convey. Number one, do not be like servants who serve their master with intention to receive reward. Number two, rather you should be like servants who serve the master without intention to receive a reward. And finally, let the fear of heaven be upon you. What this mission is telling us, what Antigonus is telling us, is that when we serve our master, 
we serve God, what should be our motivation for that behavior? It should not be like servants who serve the master with intention to receive reward. Rather, it should be like servants who serve the master without intention of receiving reward. And finally, let the fear of heaven be upon us. So let's dig into this individual and uh, this teaching. So Antigonus is one of the most mysterious characters we're going to meet in this book. We don't really know a lot about him. There's, besides for this statement in the Mishnah, there's one other teaching in ancient Jewish history about him. And it also incidentally relates to this Mishnah, to this teaching that he would always say. Uh, if you remember last week, Shimon HaTzadik, he met Alexander. So he was there at the beginning of the Greek takeover of the known world. And after Alexander died, as we know, his empire was broken up into various other Greek empires, the Seleucids, the Ptolemians, um, the Seleucids were in Assyria and Asia Minor, and the, the Ptolemites or the Ptolemians were in Egypt, and then you have the Macedonians who were in what we call today Greek, Greek proper. Now, all these were different shades of the same ideology. They were all Greek, but Greek with, uh, with slight uh, variations. And the Jews... Over the next 150 years, from the conquest of Alexander until the Hasmonean Rebellion that we celebrate every Hanukkah, they were living under Greek rule of various kinds. Initially, it was the Ptolemites, and then it became the Seleucids, and that led to the revolt of the Hasmoneans and restoring independence, Jewish sovereignty over Israel. What's important to know about this is that when the Greeks, when they did the conquest, they believed not only in conquering land and submitting the conquered people to their rule, but they also believed in cultural diffusion, taking their ideology, the Greek ideology and the Greek worldview, and disseminating it amongst the conquered people. The name of the Greek worldview was called Hellenism. And when they conquered people, they would try to uh, acculturate the new people, the new subjects to the ideology of Greece, to Greek culture. And that, of course, creates a lot of tension between the Jews of the time who have their own ideology and believe in God and Torah and believe that we're trying to reach the spiritual paradigm. And then you have the Greeks who are very much about the physical, about the glorification of the human body and art and architecture and culture and all the things that are linking us to this world. We're always talking about going to the next world. This world is just a stepping stone. It's just a corridor to Olam Abba. And the Greek ideologies know it. Everything's about here. It's about it's about uh, a lot of hedonism, about trying to maximize our experience in this world. And there were many Jews who were captivated by this new conquering people who were very sophisticated. Previously, a lot of the cultures that the Jews interacted with, they were barbarians. And then they meet the Greeks. They're very advanced. They're into the sciences. They're into learning. They're into codification, organizing law. They have a lot of commonality with our people and our way of, of, of living. And they have this new, really glitzy worldview about making everything so beautiful and making everything very physical and very appealing. So there are many Jews known as the Hellenists 
who were all aboard with this idea of spreading Greek culture in the world. And they partnered with the Greeks in trying to dismantle as much as possible the existing infrastructure of Jewish living. And they would try to contaminate the temple and corrupt a lot of the activities. And eventually there was a very militant Seleucid emperor known as Antiochus and he instituted very harsh regulations to try to bring all the Jews aboard the train of Hellenism. And that sparked the Maccabean or the Hasmonean rebellion where the Jews got fed up and under the leadership of the family of the Hasmoneans, of the Hashmonaim, the Maccabees, they managed to start a war. It started really small, guerrilla warfare. Eventually, they assembled a massive army and they succeeded after many decades to actually assert sovereignty back over the land. And that began the era known as the Hasmonean era, where these people became the kings of Israel and they ruled the land until the arrival of Pompey and the Romans, almost exactly 100 years later. So that's the story. So we have these Hellenists who are introducing all these new ideas to Jewish world, and there's a lot of conflict between the traditionalists, which is the absolute overwhelming majority of the Jewish people, and many of these new Hellenists who are very often very wealthy. They're the upper strata. They're the aristocracy. And they're the ones who were more uh, amenable to the Greek ideas. But now the Hasmoneans come and they start a war with the Greeks and everything that the Greeks stand for. And suddenly they're in control. And to be a Hellenist is no longer uh, – it's no longer acceptable. And there is a, a pivot that would make political spinsters today – blush, where all the Hellenists, they suddenly disappear from the map, and suddenly you have a rise of a group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were essentially the same Hellenists rebranded. We're no longer Hellenists, we're Sadducees. This new group of insurrectionists, they're going to act exactly like the Hellenists did before them. And they're going to be very, very powerful within the Jewish people for several hundred years. And indeed, some of the Hasmonean kings later on in this dynasty, they're actually going to convert to to become Sadducees. And that's going to cause a lot of internal strife. And the core problem that the Greeks brought with Hellenism was just shifted to now being a conflict with the Sadducees. But the same problem existed and that fermented and that... Uh, fulminated and eventually that led to the conditions that caused the destruction of the temple and the disbandment of of Jewish sovereignty over the land in the first century of the Common Era. Now, what's the history of these Sadducees uh, that eventually partnered with the Hellenists? So we're told that that all originated because of this Mishnah. Antigonus, he was the leader of the Jewish people and all the Jewish students would come joined by him. And he had this he was had this statement that he would say again and again. He would say, Don't be like servants who serve their master with intention of receiving reward. Rather do it without intention of receiving reward. And he had one student whose name was Sadok. And he had another student whose name was Baitus. 
And they said, wait a minute, what's the rabbi saying? The rabbi's saying that we should worship God and we're doing it not to receive reward. It must be what he's actually teaching us. That there is no reward. All this is for nothing. All this hard work, all these mitzvos, it's all there for nothing. And they themselves, Sadok and Baitus, they went off and they joined the Hellenists. But they actually created their own little followings. So the students of Tzadok became the Tzidokim, or the Sadducees in English. And the students of Baitos became the Baitusim. And they started their own little movements. And these movements were very small. And they were very unpopular because what they really believed was that a total abandonment of Torah. And that was very unpalpable at the time. So what they did was they actually, in an act of uh, expediency, they misrepresented what they really believed. They said, of course we believe in Torah. Of course. We're not questioning that. Obviously, they tried that initially, but it didn't work. They didn't get any, any ground, any traction. Of course, they said they started saying we believe in Torah, but it's the rabbis who corrupt. It, it's the rabbis who corrupted it all. We believe in the written Torah, sure, but not the, the oral Torah, the oral tradition. That's a bunch of malarkey. That that's what they started to say, and then people says, "Well, these people still believe in Torah. It's just that they they they, they think that the rabbis corrupted it." And that became a much more appealing sell. And that became more popular, especially once the Hellenists are running for the uh, mountains and they're running for safety. And suddenly there's what they believed all along that the Torah is a bunch of baloney. They wanted to go with the Greeks and abandon Torah wholesale. And then you have another group that's essentially doing the same thing, but now it has the, 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 the Kevlar, the cover that they're Sadducees. They believe in Torah, sure. But essentially, they too are uh, – they harbor the same underlying attitudes uh, that the Hellenists themselves did and suddenly this group becomes very formidable. And uh, they start saying, well, once – you know, it becomes very appealing. Well, once, once you say that the accepted tradition was corrupted and the rabbis are there just to make our lives miserable, once you do that, well, but we still observe written Torah. But how do you interpret written Torah? So that leads to all kinds of perversions because everyone could say, I want to interpret it this way and I want to interpret it that way. And eventually, you have your own oral Torah because that's the only way to make use of the written Torah. You have to find a way to understand the enigmatic teachings of the written Torah and then make up whatever baloney uh, comes to their mind. And eventually, they become a distinct faction amongst the people. And in opposition to the verses in Deuteronomy, which tells us that we should not depart from the words of the Sanhedrin and the interpretation that they give us through tradition of the Torah, you have this faction, the Tzidokim and the Baitusim, that they said that we're going to interpret it however we want, and eventually uh, they too disappeared with the destruction of the Second Temple. They too are gone, and they were resurrected, in the 7th and 8th century, under a different name, the Karaites, the Karite movement was almost identical to the Sadducees. Uh, they too were had their brief uh, cup of coffee, a couple hundred years actually, uh, of popularity. Uh, they're entirely gone. He had made there's a few thousand of them. 
in the, in the heyday, this, the Karaites were about a third of the nation, just like the Sadducees. They weren't quite a third, but were significant. Uh, but today, yeah, maybe there's a few Karaites. I think there's a Karaite temple somewhere in California, but I don't think they even have a minion. Like, it's not, it's not at all, it's not substantial by any, uh, by any measure. But this, says the Ram, this is the other story we know about Antignus. The other, only other story relates to this Mishnah. He taught this teaching. The people didn't understand it. His two of his students didn't understand it. They went off, and they eventually are the forbearers of this other movement, this other insurrectionist movement amongst the people that caused us a lot of problems. And our sages attribute the origins of the Sadducees to misunderstanding of this Mishnah. So obviously, it's not so easy to understand. This is an important introduction because what this demonstrates is that there is a potential for us to misunderstand this Mishnah. But there are other sources that seem to say the same idea. Rambam, Maimonides, he has an entire essay, a treatise on reward and punishment and the proper attitudes that we should, that we should adopt when doing mitzvos. And he brings this Mishnah, of course. And he also brings other teachings of the Talmud that seem to say the same thing. For example, the Talmud in Avodah Zarah, on page 19, it tells us, it quotes a verse in Psalms 112, The righteous person is very desirous in God's mitzvos. Says the Talmud, a righteous person is desirous of God's mitzvos, but not of the reward of mitzvos. And therefore, we should do the mitzvos not in anticipation of reward. That's one, that's one source he brings. Another from the Midrash, from the Sifri, that says quite plainly, Shema Toma, perhaps you may say, Hareini Loma Torah Usher, I'm going to study Torah so that I'll be rich. Or that I'll be called a rabbi, everyone give me honor. Or that I should get reward in Olmaba. Therefore, to dispel this misconception, the verse tells the verse tells us, to love God, everything that we do should be out of love. So this seems to imply, all these sources seem to, seem to imply that we're commanded to observe Torah altruistically, to do it without intention of receiving reward. And obviously it seems to imply that such activities are feasible. Again, the Torah wouldn't ask us to do something that would be not possible to do. Uh, we know that it's very difficult, or maybe it's even impossible to do something altruistically. How could you be motivated to do something when there's no motivation to do it? So is the mission telling us to act altruistically, to just do good, do mitzvah, study Torah without thinking about the reward? So what should be the motivation for us to do it? Is it really possible to make such a demand? Uh, moreover, the way our Mishnah reads, it reads as follows. Instead, be like servants who serve their master, not on condition of receiving reward. Maimonides, he has a slightly different text. He switches two of the words. The way he reads it is instead, be like servants who serve their master on condition of not receiving reward. So it's not like, not a condition to receive reward, but maybe we'll get reward. Yeah, maybe we will get reward, but that's not why we're doing it. He says the reason why we should do mitzvahs is on condition to not receive reward. So it means you have to almost explicitly feel that you don't want the reward. 
that seems to be uh, – how do you possibly explain that we should specifically have intention not to receive reward? It means the way we, our, our missionary reads is not so difficult. It's not on condition to receive reward, but it's not on condition to not receive reward. That's it. So, right? But Maimonides is, Maimonides is telling us, no, that we have to do mitzvahs. We have to worship God on condition with the explicit intent to not receive reward. How do we make sense of that? Uh, additionally, there are many, many verses in the Torah that seem to be in direct conflict with this teaching. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, we read all those things. You do mitzvahs, you'll be rich and you'll have prosperity and you'll have uh, stability and you'll be able to defeat your enemies and you, your, your animals will thrive and your crops will thrive. There's many verses that say that. Just do mitzvahs and good things will happen to you. You have a long life. You have lots of children. You have stability. You'll have uh, tranquility. You have continuity. That seems to imply that we're told do mitzvos and you will receive reward. And here we're told don't think about reward, or even think specifically to not have reward. That's h- how do these two uh, teachings? How do they reconcile? Uh, also, the Talmud tells us that this attitude of doing mitzvos without intention of receiving reward is called doing it out of love of God. We should act out of love of God, and that's why we should do mitzvos altruistically. What does this mean, this distinction, this classification that we're doing it out of love? But also, it's interesting, the last section of the Mishnah, it says, the fear of heaven should be upon us, which seems to be, fear and love seem to be opposites. There seems to be very different motivations. So what does it mean that we should act out of love but also act out of fear. Which one is it? So this is, again, like we said, this is not an easy mission. This is the most difficult one we've seen by far and maybe most difficult one we will see because what the mission is actually conveying, well, there's many interpretations for the mission like we said um, and I'm going to share a few interpretations before we get really deep into the subject but there's a subtlety here and we're going to try to get to that point. Uh, and I think once we get to that point, it'll open up new vistas of understandings in a lot of points. So just some suggestions by the various commentaries of how to understand this Mishnah. So Rabbi Yona tells us that, you know, God asks us to do things for him, so to speak. He says, all these mitzvahs, I'm commanding you to do the mitzvahs, do the mitzvahs. Study Torah. Well, what did God do to us? What has God already done for us? Our existence, our life, everything that we have is only from God. The basic common decency is that when someone does something good for you, you reciprocate. You know, and if someone gives you a glass of water, you say thank you. If someone gives you a ride, you say you appreciate it. If someone gives you a gift of a thousand dollars, you're very thankful. What if someone gives you everything that you have in your life? We we know, we believe that everything in the world, everything in existence, with the exception of God, is dependent upon God. Thus, every single time we breathe and we fill our lungs with oxygen and we're alive for a little bit longer, that's only a gift from God. In fact, the Talmud tells us, Every time we breathe, we have to thank God. So that's, you breathe 60 times, I mean, maybe 50 times a minute, thousands of times a day, millions of times a year, and every single time we have to be thankful of God. And God says, do a mitzvah. 
What's in it for me? What do you what's in it for me? The Almighty does so much for us. Our whole life is all a gift from God. We shouldn't be asking what's in it for me. That's one way of understanding this Mishnah. There's another way of understanding this Mishnah. If we had someone who was very important walk into the room, and well, we do, all, all of you are in the room, but if we had someone who was like a celebrity or someone who was a very powerful person, someone who was very wealthy, someone who was a great scientist or a great athlete, that if Michael Jordan walked in the room right there and he walks around and he looks around and he says, can anyone get me a glass of water? I was like, oh, I want to be like Mike. I see Michael Jordan. Oh my gosh, he was my hero. Let me, and it was a run clamoring to get him a glass of water. Why? Because you feel privileged to help and to assist and to obey someone who is of high stature. That's a human tendency. So if it's Michael Jordan, what if it's a king? Or, I don't know, the prince of... Uh, the, the, the prince, uh, Prince George, right? Or, uh, William. They walk into the room and they're like, yeah, someone got me a glass of water. I was like, oh, wow. I'll tell my kids. Once he came into our Torah class, the prince was now the king and I got him a glass of water. I like kind of, I'll put it on my Facebook. I'm so happy. I'll run, tell everyone. What if the king of kings, the creator of the universe, the almighty, creator of heaven and earth, if he asks us to do something, it's a privilege for us to do it, not because we want to get something tangible in return. That in itself, the fact that God is asking us to do something and like we matter in his eyes, like that alone should be enough of a motivation for us to obey his commands. That's a second approach. The, the Chassid Yaivas, one of the books, one of the great books on Perkyavos, he likens it. He says there's two ways that we could work or we could worship. And he gives us an example of two different kinds of employees. You have the salaried employee who has a, has a contract and he has, you know, he's given 20 days of vacation a year and he clocks in at nine and clocks out at five. And then you, and then you have another kind of employee who is the heir to the company. There's no contract. And he does he comes in on Sunday and he works 18 hours a day and he doesn't even make a salary. And if you actually look, who makes more money? The heir who's working under his dad's tutelage to take over the business or the employee? The employee, the salaried employee is less dedicated to the job and gets paid more. And, but the heir, he'll work even without getting paid. And, the employee, well, he has to get paid wages and he gets what he des- deserves and nothing more. And if you don't pay me, quits. But there's actually a superiority in the relationship and in the work of the heir versus the employee, salaried employee. The employee's mandate, the dictum of the employee is, I'm going to do the minimum amount to not get fired or to advance, to get promoted. That's the logical approach of a salaried worker, right? I'm going to do whatever it is that's bare minimum because I, what I'm really I'm, what I'm really motivated about is myself. I want to get paid and therefore – but I don't want to work hard. So it's all about their selfish motivations. I want to work only as much as needed to make as much money as I can. I'm not going to put in extra work and not – unless it will yield something for me. Whereas – 
the air, well, they're all in. And they have a much greater upside. Even though they get paid less on a salaried basis, but they're investing in something much bigger. Whereas the employee gets his wages and maybe it benefits and that's it. What this Mishnah is telling us is that it's not telling us to reject the idea of us getting something from God for our behavior. What it's telling us is be like the heir, not like the employee. Don't just have this rigid relationship. It's a, it's a working relationship. It's a, it, there's contracts and there's lawyers to there to interface between us and God. We'll work. We'll get paid on a salary basis. No, what it's telling us is there's much bigger upside for us to invest our life in it and not to think about the petty, the, the, the petty paychecks, the, the bi-weekly paychecks that you get and that's the relationship. That's where it ends. No, it's, it's about building something much grander and the upside is much greater. So that's, I think, a very nice way of thinking about this Mishnah. What it's telling us is, of course, it's not telling us to to repudiate the notion of us gaining something. Rather, it's quite to the contrary. It's to augment, to increase, to expand, to amplify what it is we could gain. But that demands that there is a certain relationship here. There are, I think, good ways to think about what this mission is conveying. But I want to I want to share with you something, a treasure. I want to share with you a treasure. There is uh, Maimonides. He wrote a an essay, a treatise on reward and punishment, and it's it's so beautiful and it's so fundamental, so critical and so pivotal. And he addresses this point, but he presents an idea that's such a powerful idea that really explains this Mishnah, and it really I think could formulate an entire worldview, certainly on Torah, but on relationships as well. So he begins by kind of. Oh, asking a question. And he says, listen, we believe that you do mitzvahs, you'll get something good for it. What exactly is that reward? Is an entirely different question. And he writes, he says, there's so many different opinions, and there's so much misunderstanding, and there's so much confusion, and people don't exactly know anything about this. But I'll clarify it for you. So first what he does is he breaks down the five different opinions. There's five different opinions amongst the general population, as to what it is the goodness that we get from doing mitzvahs. By the way, if you want to read this, it is in his commentary in Mishnah, and it's an introduction to the last final chapter of the book of Sanhedrin. It's a, it's a little bit of a difficult read, because uncharacteristically, Maimonides is speaking in very, in very, um, uh, verbose terms, and he throws in tangential points, so it can be a little confusing. You read it a few times, and it makes total sense. Uh, but it's so fundamental. So let's let's start with 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 his his initial assessment, surveying of the land. He says there's five different opinions I hear amongst people, and they're all wrong. The first opinion says that the reason why we do mitzvot is that we should get entrance to paradise, and paradise is a wonderful place, Ganeiden. You could eat and drink and not work hard and have so many diamonds and gems and comfort and there's rivers full of wine. Everything's wonderful. And if that's if you do mitzvahs. And if you sin, you go to Gehenim and that's really terrible. It's really painful. And that, that's the first opinion. 
Second opinion is that the, the benefit, the reward for mitzvos is called Mashiach. What's that? We'll all be like angels. We'll be really strong. We'll live forever. And we'll, and we'll, the, 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 we'll, we'll be in the world. We'll dominate the world. And they, it will be miraculous. Even things that are not possible to happen will happen. Out of the land, they'll grow food that's fully cooked and fully baked. Clothing will sprout from the ground, fully formed. Oh, everything's gonna be wonderful. And if you don't, if you sin, you won't be privy to that. It's like, and all these, all these opinions, they all seem to have proofs from it. Everyone seems to have proof. Okay, there's a third group, a third, uh, a third opinion, a third cadre, as he calls them, and that is, they say that the reward is resurrection of the dead. You're able to hang out with your family. Your grandparents who used to tell you stories about uh, a baseball in the twenties, he'll come back and he'll smoke in his pipe and he'll he'll tell you stories about the about about the war, and yeah, you'll be able to live there with your family and it'll be all wonderful. And if and if you don't, if you sin, you won't have that experience. And of course, they too have proofs for what they say. And a fourth group, they say that it's 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 worldly pleasure, it's accessing worldly lust. And everything's going to be easy. Everything's going to be wonderful. If you're a sinner, you don't have that. And then finally, there's a fifth group that makes a huge jumble out of it all. It'll be good. You'll have paradise. You'll have Mashiach. You'll have resurrection of the dead. It's all one big happy family. But the one thing that no one talks about, says the Rambam, is Olam Abba. No one knows what it is. No one knows what it means. No one knows how you get it. And he's kind of lamenting the fact that the one critical point, the one true answer, people don't talk about it. That's his introduction. And then he starts talking about, he gives an, an analogy, he gives a parable, which is much more directed to our Mishnah. He says, I'll, I'll read you his introduction. He says, and you, who is reading intently my book, understand this parable that I'm, that, that I'm going to uh, analogize for you. And then prepare your heart and listen to my words and all of this. He's telling you, like, listen very carefully. Imagine, this is the parable. You have a young boy. And the young boy, his father sends him to, to go study Torah by the teacher. And that, of course, Maimonides interjects, that's the best thing that could be for him. That's the mo- that, That'll help him the most in advancing his life. But the child, he's little. And his mind isn't solidified. And he doesn't realize that studying Torah is the best thing for him. He wants candy. He wants lollipops. That's what he wants. Don't give me Torah. I don't want Torah. I want lollipops. So what do they do? They bring him to the school. And the teacher says, in one hand, he has a, a chumish, a Torah. And then he has lollipops. He says, you study Torah, I'll give you lollipops. You don't study Torah, I won't give you lollipops. The kid sees the lollipops. He wants the lollipop. He doesn't want the Torah. But he'll study Torah, he'll suffer his way through it to get the lollipop. And that's a good deal. Kid learns Torah, he gets the lollipop, every day he gets more candy, sometimes he gets, Rama says he gets nuts, or he gets honey, or he gets figs, everyone's happy. And the kid's studying Torah, not because he wants the Torah, he wants the candy. But the candy is is used to entice him to get him to study Torah. And then continues the Rambam, the kid gets a little older. And Candies and sweets, they don't have that same, 
they don't talk to him the same way anymore. They don't they don't have the same appeal to him. He's now more sophisticated. He wants to wear nice clothing. He wants to have nice polished shoes. He wants a ferragamo belt. He wants to look good. So again, they bring him to the teacher and they say, here's Torah. Torah? I don't want to study Torah. I want nice clothing. So again, the teacher does the same thing. He has on one hand the beautiful clothing. On the other hand, he has the Torah. Study Torah. I give you this. Kid studies Torah. Not because he wants to study Torah. Because he wants the wonderful clothing. And fine. And that works out very well. And the kid gets a little older. And suddenly he doesn't even want clothing. Now he wants cold cash. So again, the teacher tells him, you want the cash? Here is a gold coin. He studied Torah, he got the gold coin. And again, the child studies Torah. Not because he wants to study Torah, but he wants the money. And the child gets a little older. And now he's a man. And he doesn't even want money. What he wants now is honor and prestige. And he wants people to look up to him. And he wants to be called a rabbi. And he wants to be called a judge. And he wants people to stand up when he walks into the room. That's what he really wants. So he goes to the teacher. And the teacher says, you know what? Here's Torah. Study Torah. And if you study, everyone will think you're so smart and so clever. And everyone will stand up for you. And everyone will call you rabbi. And they'll address you questions. And they'll give you uh, honors. And the child studies Torah. The man studies Torah now. And he studies Torah. Not because he wants to study Torah. But only because he wants the honor and the reward and the prestige that is associated with it. Says the Rambam. All this is wrong. And I want to stress his point. His point is not that the idea of reward is wrong per se. But the model of studying Torah to get some other reward that's external to Torah, that's the problem. What he tells us is it's fine for someone to say that I'll, I'll study Torah. Oh, and what does that mean? Naturally, if you study Torah, you'll become wiser and you'll maybe get something to make it easier. But the idea of not studying Torah for Torah's sake, to study Torah for some other reason, some other external reason, that's that's problematic. You have someone who's he's old, he's studying Torah only because to get something else which is a fleeting pleasure. However, just as an aside, there's nothing wrong with doing it. He, he tells us, actually, this is the proper way to educate children. Don't, don't, don't mistake what he's saying to say, I'm going to tell my kids, sorry, there ain't no candy for you. Study Torah because of Torah. That's a mistake, says the Rambam. You know why? Because the kid doesn't understand that. His mind is not developed enough to understand that you're supposed to study Torah for Torah's sake alone. He doesn't get it. And therefore, all he gets is candy. So it's better for you to give him the candy and have him study Torah so his mind could develop and he could connect more to, pure, to, to perfection. What he's telling us is that it's okay to employ this tactic even though it's not ideal. But this is all a tactic to get someone to a destination. This is not the end game. And even when someone is advanced, in their, they're already a scholar, they could still make the same mistake and hinge their Torah study and their mitzvot and their observance of God on something else. And that's a problem. Now, what he's telling us really is that all those other things, you'll have wealth and you'll have prosperity and you'll have stability and you'll have sovereignty and you'll have hegemony and you'll have a family and you'll have long life. All that, that the Torah says, you study Torah. 
those are not the essential rewards. That's not reward at all. All that is what God is telling us is if you want to do Torah, you want to do mitzvahs, I'm going to facilitate that. I'm going to enable that. If someone's hungry, if someone's stomach is growling, how could they study Torah? How could they do mitzvahs? How could they focus on anything else? So God's telling us in all those verses that are describing reward for mitzvahs, they're not the actual essential reward of the mitzvah. Rather, what the Almighty is telling us is that if you want to do this, I'm going to enable you. I'm going to facilitate it. I'm going to remove all the inhibitors. I'm going to remove all the distractions and to enable you to do what you want. But that's not, that's not the reward. The reward is olam haba. That's the actual reward. And here is where the point I want to get to. What is olam haba? And can we say that we're doing mitzvos to get Olam Abba? It seems like if Olam Abba, if that's the actual reward, whatever it is, but if that's the actual reward, is it still okay to say that I'm going to dwell and focus on this, on Olam Abba, as my motivation for doing mitzvos? So the Ramam tells us that it's not okay. This Mishnah and Tignush Isoko don't do mitzvahs that would get reward. What that's telling us is that even the absolute reward, even all not the candies, the Olam Abba, you should not do it because you should not do mitzvahs in order with the intention of getting that reward. But he explains it. And this is, I think, the subtle point which makes it really hard to grasp. He says that the proper way to worship God is that you should realize that a healthy person, someone whose soul is active and present in their life, which is how he describes a healthy person, someone like that will realize that Mitzvos and Olam Abba are not external factors, rather they're internal factors. What he says is like this. He says it in a very poetic and beautiful way. But to make this simple, what he says is like this. This idea that reward is external from the activities that bring about the reward, that's the misconception. The idea of study Torah, you get something else, be it a lollipop be it clothing, be it money, be it a title, be it all about whatever it is. That is the critical mistake, to think that doing the mitzvos are something external from the reward that those mitzvos engender. That's the mistake. And I, I want to kind of elaborate on this point. In the Hebrew text of this Mishnah, it uses the word pras. He uses the word, don't be like servants who worship their master on the condition of receiving pras, reward. Rather, be like servants who worship the master without the intention of receiving pras, reward. There's actually another word that is used to describe reward in Hebrew. It's called schar. Schar. So all the commentators are saying, why does the Mishnah use the word pras and not the word schar? And the Ramam tells us 
that the word pros means it's a gift. It's out of compassion. It's not something which is necessary. Like a slave. You don't need to pay your slave. But if you give him something good, that's a gift. That's something external. Whereas schar, that's sort of like compensation, where you're mandated to pay. So if you notice, the Mishnah does not use the word schar, which seems like it's something which is necessarily a byproduct of the word schar. It does not use that word. It uses the word pras. What this is telling us is that a mitzvah is going to evoke reward. However, what is the relationship between the mitzvah and the reward that it yields? It's don't be like people who are looking for pras, who are looking for a gift. You do a mitzvah, you get a gift. You do a mitzvah, you get a lollipop. You do a mitzvah, you get an honorific. You do a mitzvah, you get clothing or money or olamaba. That's what it's telling us. Rather, realize that what you're actually doing is something which is a necessary byproduct of the action that you're doing to bring about that reward. For example, if I if I work for a company, right? I get paid. My work mandates that they pay me. Better example. Someone makes dinner. So you're hungry, right? You want to eat. So you work really hard and you prepare prepare dinner. What's the relationship between the work to prepare dinner and the consumption of the dinner? No one's going to say that, oh, I worked really hard in making food. I get a prize. I get to eat food. It's not a prize that you get as if it's something external. No, you work to prepare food and therefore you get to eat the food. That's more like a reward because it's directly connected to the action that brings about what it yields. No one's going to say, oh, uh, as a gift, out of nowhere, out of the blue, someone gave me something which is the dinner that I'm eating. No, you actually made the dinner and you're eating the dinner. When we talk about mitzvos, and mitzvos yield reward, they yield reward the exact same way that you are rewarded for making dinner by eating dinner. What this means is that mitzvos, they are spiritual realities. In our world, it's a physical world. We don't see spiritual realities. We see physical realities. However, we get to a spiritual world, Olamaba. It's a spiritual world. And suddenly, our entire perspective is flipped on its head. We see the world in an entirely different way. All we see now is spiritual realities. Physical realities, don't, they don't, we don't notice it. It's, everything's flipped on its head. Just like spiritual realities are clouded from our view here, physical realities are clouded from our, our view there. You get to Olamaba. And you're hungry. You want to eat breakfast. Well, okay. How do you eat breakfast in that world? If, 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 if you need spiritual breakfast, you have to feed it with spiritual food. What is the spiritual food in the spiritual world? So what we say is that a mitzvah is a spiritual reality that is not consumable in this world and is only consumable in Olamaba. But if you are making, you're doing a mitzvah today, it's not something, some gift that comes out of the blue in Olamaba. Oh, let me give you a reward that's not at all related to the activity. Actually, the activity itself is creating the reality that is consumed in Olamaba. Says the Talmud, if someone works hard to prepare food for Shabbos, 
they get to eat food on Shabbos. If someone does not work hard to prepare food before Shabbos, they don't get to eat food on Shabbos. There is a relationship between creating, preparing, and consuming. Right? Once Shabbos comes, you can't make any more food. All you have to eat is the food that you prepared beforehand. Similarly, says the Talmud, all of above, that's the, that's the world of consumption, of spiritual consumption. Well, what do you consume? You consume whatever it is that you prepared before you got there. So let's go back to some of our questions here. This, that, that's what the mission is telling us. It's, an, it's telling us to shift our ideology, our perspective on what mitzvot are and what our relationship with God is. Don't think about it in our world. Give me something as a gift because I did a mitzvah. Rather, it's telling us don't think that you're like a slave who needs a gift from his master. No. What you're actually doing is much greater than that. You're actually investing in your future, and the future is what you're investing in right now. We talk about altruism. Altruism is doing something without a motivation to get something in return. This is, mission is not telling us to do altruist, act altruistically. Back to our breakfast example. If someone eats breakfast, do they get something out of it? Do they get some sort of reward for it? Of course not. They get breakfast, right? They get nourishment, which they wanted. So people who say that uh, you can't possibly act altruistic, I'll prove you wrong. What do you mean? You don't get any reward for eating breakfast? It's just for you. It's not reward. It's breakfast. Yes, but it's not something external to the activity, right? It's not like you get some reward. Someone gives you a, a sticker on your chest that you, oh, he successfully managed to navigate breakfast. Physiologically, from our soul's perspective, we are wired to enjoy mitzvos the same way our body is wired to enjoy everything we, that we could possibly enjoy in this world. And just like when we partake in this world on a physical sense, we're not thinking about some other reward that it will yield. In the spiritual world, when we invest in the spiritual world, let us not think, says Antignos, that we're trying to yield something external. Rather, inherent in the mitzvah itself is the benefit of that mitzvah, not for our body, for our soul. You know, let, let's revisit some of the questions we had earlier. When we talk about doing something out of love, what is the grounds to create a loving relationship? If everyone is motivated for what they can get out of something, I'm only going to act if I can get some sort of tangible, immediate reward for it. I'm not going to take out the garbage unless I get plaudits from my spouse. And everything I'm doing, I want something which is external. Like, that's not going to lead to love. Love is about investing in the relationship itself. Not in something that I'm going to get. So you say, why do people get married? Why do people invest in relationships? Is it for themselves or is it for, them spouse, for their spouse? It could still be for themselves and yet not be selfish, right? Because they themselves want to invest in the relationship. Not because every action is selfish, because every action will yield me some sort of benefit. No. When you have a relationship based out of love, you're investing in the relationship itself. Of course, you benefit from that. I'm not saying I'm not benefiting from it. You are benefiting from it. But if you think about the fact, every action, what will I gain from this? 
then actually, ironically, it's going to cause the relationship to devolve. Says the Rambam. You have to be so wary of saying, in the relationship you have with God, what can I, what's in it for me? Because by even saying that point, of course it's all in it. You, you will benefit from it. And you have to be aware of that. But if you think of what what is a tangible, palpable benefit I could get in this world from this, the second you make that equation, the relationship is going to devolve. Therefore, the way he reads the Mishnah, you should worship God, work for God with the explicit intention to not receive reward, to not receive a prize. I don't want anything to cloud the relationship. Yes, I'm not doing it altruistically. I'm doing it for myself, It's but it's for me. It's for my soul. It's for my eternity. And I think this, I, I, I think, it really opens up a new perspective of what mitzvahs are. If someone says, I'll do a mitzvah and I'll get something as a reward, but that reward is something external to the mitzvah themselves, they're actually selling themselves short. They're not realizing the power and the potential of a mitzvah. So ironically, what the Mishnah is actually telling us is we should do it for a reward, but for a much grander reward that is not transactional, that I'll do this and I'll get something something in return. I don't want that kind of reward. I want a different kind of reward, a reward in, in Olam Abba where I'm investing in myself. And even with regards to Olam Abba, don't say, I'll do this, I'll get Olam Abba. Don't separate the mitzvah from the transformation that the mitzvah brings about. Because the second you do that, you're downgrading it to the parameters of this world. And again, like we said, this is a very subtle point. And you can see perhaps why to students, the Sadducees, uh, the f- forbear of the Sadducees and the Baitusim, they're like, well, wait a minute, he just told us not to think about any reward. Why are we doing this? What is in it for us? And of course, that is a misrepresentation of, of what he was saying. What he was saying is, that let let us make ourselves into people that are worthy of getting Olam Abba. Let us invest as much as we can in ourselves, in our soul, and not try to sell out and cash in early, so to speak. Let me get something right away without changing myself. I think that this, this is a very a very powerful thought for us to keep with us in our pursuit of any relationship. Certainly, a pursuit of a relationship with God. There's various motivations we can have for behavior. The Mishnah is not telling us to do something without a motivation. That's not possible. Humans don't act like that. We act because we're motivated. But if we're going to foster a lasting relationship with God, it's not going to be brought about by us thinking in these terms. We can think out of love, out of fear, out of pursuit of reward, but even out of fear, there's various kinds of motivations. What does it say? What is the Mishnah? How does the Mishnah end? Let the fear of heaven be upon you. All the commentaries point out that in Jewish sources, there's two kinds of fears that we have with respect to God. This fear of heaven and this fear of punishment. You'll notice the Mishnah does not tell us that we should fear punishment. Because by doing that, again, we're downgrading the relationship. When it says fear of heaven, it means Let's invest the relationship in a serious way. Let's have fear of heaven, so to speak. It's not fear of what's going to matter to us. Let us deepen our relationship with God by making it very serious, by recognizing that 
well, heaven, it, it kind of, it's, it's expansive. It's not just like, what will happen to me if I don't fear God? What would happen to me if I, if I disobey God? Rather, fear of heaven, a seriousness that is brought about by the stature of the entity on the other side of this relationship. And I think this is a good, a good critical point for relationship with God and relationship with others. It should be about investing in the relationship itself not in what the relationship will yield. And that is the key to creating last relationships. That's out of love and out of fear. Those are two elements. Love because I'm investing in the relationship in the positive sense. Fear because I have seriousness in and 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 and, and I'm I, the I, I'm recognizing the worthiness of my counterpart. A fear of heaven. God created all of heavens heavens and earth. Not because what am I gonna do? What's in it for me? What will it yield? Rather, it's telling us to take a certain seriousness in this relationship and those two qualities together will ensure that the relationship will have, uh, will have uh, continuity. I think this is, again, a very powerful idea. Um, I would encourage everyone, if they can, to get a hold of this teaching of Maimonides. I think there are copies of it in English. I, I only went through parts of it. There are other parts of it that I that I skip because he goes on to tangents, like we said. But this is a, a very subtle point. We're investing in something that's very powerful to us, but we're not thinking about anything that's tangential to the actual relationship we're trying to, to craft. If we think about it in that way, we'll be successful in crafting a deep relationship and fulfilling one of the pillars upon which the world stands, Avoda. Next time, next Mishnah, we'll try to address the question, well, okay, we just talked about one of those pillars. There's two more pillars. There's Torah, and then there's kindness. Those are the three pillars that uphold the world. Right now, we first addressed the relationship that we have with God. Next, we're going to address the relationship that we have with ourselves. And finally, we're going to address the relationship we have with our fellow man. Again, uh, this was a, a difficult and a subtle teaching but I think a very powerful one that we can use in various areas of our life. And I look forward to the next time and the next teaching that we get to uh, dwell upon.